Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about autism stories. These days I'm increasing the amount of running that I do, or at least trying to do, so today's conversation comes at a great time for me. Jesse Tim joins this episode to discuss how running has impacted his life, working in the running industry, and honoring his limitations. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Jesse, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Doug. I wanted to start off and learn where does your story begin in the autism community? Yeah, so my story in the autism community actually begins on a podcast. So I was listening to one of the podcasts that I, I listen to on the regular, Skeptics with a K, a great British podcast. I really love the, uh, the host there. Two of them are autistic. And in one episode a couple years ago, I think it was 2021, one of the hosts like kind of shared his story about how he learned that he was autistic. And if you removed all of the specifics and just kind of described the experiences, all of them were exactly me. And so I would, it was the first time I'd ever really considered that as a, as a possible option. I'd had a lot of mental health struggles growing up and kind of to present day, but I've long tried to like explain them. I found partial explanations, but nothing fit the whole picture. So that kind of set me on a course to go like figure out, is this the case for me? And so I took a year and a half, but I eventually found a diagnostician that was able to take me through the assessment. And it took a couple months to get kind of the final answer, but it did eventually confirm that I was autistic. And uh, from there, it's been a lot of learning and kind of making up for lost time, essentially. I always tell people podcasts are life-changing, and here you confirm that right there. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So when you learned you you were autistic, I read that you dove like headlong into books written by autistic folks about autism. Were there any books that were particularly meaningful to you? Yes. Yeah, definitely. So the first book I read, I do not recall the author's name off the top of my head, but the book itself was called, But You Don't Look Autistic at All. And so it kind of went through just kind of a lot of really pretty basic stuff about the autistic experience from an autistic person herself. She is, I want to say Dutch. And so it was like a little, a lot of the particulars weren't very applicable to me because she was dealing with, you know, Dutch healthcare systems and stuff like that. But it had a lot of really good information. And what I found most striking is someone else was saying things that I thought I was the only one to ever experience. And it was one of those things where it's the first time I'd ever seen in someone else's words things that I felt for a very long time. And so it was really huge to just read that. The other book that I went to next was called Unmasking Autism by Dr. Devin Price. And that one is amazing. 
everyone should read that one. <laughs> uh, just the way that they break down the autistic experience is really accessible for both autistic and allistic folks at the same time. And I particularly really liked how it, it highlighted and centered intersectionality and kind of multiply marginalized communities in the book. Like I'm a, you know, cishet white dude. <laughs> so like, and if it's, if it's as hard as it's been for me to have this experience, how much harder would it be to be like a, a black woman who was also autistic, right? And I think that that book does a really, really good job of describing the autistic experience while keeping kind of that angle front and center. And they actually have another book called Laziness Does Not Exist, which I just finished. And that one isn't really about autism, but I mean, I can certainly relate from the executive functioning kind of experiences described in the book. So that one is just a, a good all around book. Devin is a wonderful writer and the book, but you don't look autistic at all. I might be mispronouncing her name, but I believe it was by Bianca Topes, T-O-E-P-S. Yes. Okay. Yep. Great. So you have a wonderful blog titled It's Story Tim, I guess playing off its story time maybe a little bit with your name. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> your latest blog post you wrote about something that's really important to me nowadays is honoring limitations. So I'm trying to really focus on that because I do think so many things that I want, you know, present themselves to me when I do honor my limitations. So I'm wondering what are some things you've kind of learned to honor your limitations? Yeah, it, that is, it's an ongoing process. <laughs> like it's one of those things where everything I learn seems to overturn three new, diff, like different subjects or different kind of angles that I, that I now have to kind of deal with. So kind of right now, I'm unpacking a lot of shame that I used to carry kind of around things that I, I felt like I should be able to do, like things that I would see other people do with seeming ease and would struggle to do myself and not really understand why I now know why. <laughs> so like trying to give myself more, more grace and compassion, I think kind of a simple, seemingly small thing that actually really impacted me pretty deeply was my experience with food prior to understanding autistic sensory issues. I just thought I was a picky eater. I had a lot of shame around it. I felt very like self-conscious about how particular I am about my food choices and how certain things just do not work for me um, in terms of food. And so I remember once when I was a kid, I bit into an apple and it was like, it felt firm and, and good on the outside, but as soon as I bit into it, all of the like inside the fruit was just like rotten. And I just burst into tears because it was such a horrible texture and, and a horrible experience. And I just, I couldn't, I could not cope with it as a, as a kid. And even as an adult, I remember being, it was in the break room at one of my former jobs and somebody offered me some chips and I thought they were potato chips and they, turns out they were flavored with coconut and I cannot do coconut. And I almost started crying in the break room because it was just such an affront to my my senses. And so like that, that it was something that I'm like, I feel like I'm overreacting here, but at the same time, I can't really control how visceral this reaction is for me. And so when I learned that like same foods are a thing and like and a lot of autistic people have a very similar experience with food and the fact that like eating disorders are extremely prevalent in the autistic community, it was just one of those things where I was like, oh, wow, okay, <laughs> this is, this is a thing. And it's, a limitation that I have, like, 
I can't just muscle my way through a food that I know I'm not going to like. It's that's just a thing. And so that's like kind of a small thing. But I think one of the bigger kind of things that I'm dealing with now is just depression and anxiety and kind of all of the the ways that I've tried to, you know, mask and hide autistic traits well before I knew that they existed to try to fit in and comport myself to this idea that I had to be a certain way that was just fundamentally incompatible with me as a person and kind of how my brain works and trying to fit myself into this, this tiny box and uh, blog post that I wrote somewhat recently for world, I think it was suicide awareness day. When I learned the, there was a stat that something like the autistic community is nine times more likely to die by suicide than your neurotypical peers. And so when I learned that, it immediately resonated. I was just like, oh, okay, so this is not, I'm not crazy. This is, this is very much a thing that like we deal with by living in a world that is inherently antithetical to how our brains work. Mm-hmm. And so I like just kind of recognizing those little things where it seems on its face like, like maybe it was an overreaction, but then when you unpack kind of the layers there, it's actually, you know, something that is a very real part of the autistic experience that needs to, it can't be forced. It has to be worked with. <laughs> you can't like, you can't power through something that is, is just kind of inherent to you. You were, you were talking about coconut chips before, and I don't even understand coconut chips. Like, is that, I didn't even know that was a thing. I, it's a it's amazing it's how some of these flavors flavor, yeah <laughs> it was not my favorite i'll say that but that's a good example of how like when like you can't just say oh here you want some chips like that's a lack to me like it's not direct communication you're not being specific of you know what exactly those ch- might be in those chips so uh, 100%. <laughs> So, um, you know, in your blog post about honoring limitations, you touched on, I wanted to maybe dig a little bit deeper on is in regards to religion um, and how I'm wondering it may previously may have gotten in the way of honoring your limitations. So how do you kind of see the intersection of religion and honoring your limitations in your life? So I was a pastor's kid. I was born into a conservative religious culture and it's one aspect of me that like is in addition to the autism is I'm also clinically OCD and so my experience with religion was extremely problematic because of that there were kind of a couple a couple converging things that all kind of happened and created a perfect storm um so so when I when I was like probably my I was probably four, maybe five at the oldest. The first philosophical concept that I internalized and understood was the concept of original sin. Humans are evil and I am human. Ergo, I am evil. It was really, really not hard math for me to do. And so I just, I adopted that as my foundational precept of self from the time, like the first earliest memories that I have are of me praying dozens dozens of times the sinner's prayer before I could sleep because if I didn't pray it quite right if I you know maybe I missed a word or maybe I didn't emphasize it right or maybe I wasn't sincere enough I would pray until it felt like I did it exactly right and then I could sleep and so like that's that was my starting point that was the starting line for me (laughs) and so like that 
that doesn't get better with time. And so I, I just kept getting those messages of shame and, you know, just kind of lived my life under this belief that my instincts, my emotions, it just couldn't be trusted. They were fundamentally wrong or suspect or evil. And so then when later, when depression hit and hit hard, I internalized that and felt like that was my fault as well, because I, it, to me, it was like, oh, this is a demonic attack because I'm not pure enough. That's why I feel this way. And so I started taking responsibility for the depression too. <laughs> and then from there, you know, it just started kind of spiraling and getting worse. And eventually I was just, I kind of reached a point where I couldn't, I just couldn't understand why everything was so hard. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a memoir just for me so I can kind of look back at my life and see where things went wrong. Because something went wrong. I don't know what, but something went very wrong. And so I wrote a memoir when I was about, I think it was 22 years old. And it didn't help. It didn't work. I didn't see a through line. I didn't understand. And then a couple years later, I kind of thought back on it. And I was like, I should try again. I was too academic and too personal somehow at the same time. So I was like kind of writing it as though it was going to be read by someone who might judge me or might like view it with, uh, you know, shame or something like that. So I was like, okay, let's, let's change the style a little bit. And so instead of writing it as Jesse, I flipped the script a little bit and I wrote it about Jesse. I wrote it in the present tense to kind of encourage more stream of consciousness and less kind of self-censorship. I also wrote it in the third person. So I didn't use I pronouns. I used my name where I talked about myself. And within 500 words, I saw the through line of every single mental health problem I've ever had. And that was when you tell a four-year-old or a five-year-old child that they're evil, it doesn't do great things for their self-esteem or ability to cope later in life. And they intend, like, tend to then adopt problems that they believe are their problems, but actually, no, it's just a problem with what they've been told, kind of what they've been forced to believe. And so that is stuff that I am still unpacking. <laughs> I've been unpacking it since then. But I essentially just decided, okay, I have to learn all of the things I've been avoiding. And those were largely science and sexuality. Those were the two biggest points of shame and fear for me growing up because those were the two kind of pathways to atheism. And ironically, they were the, <laughs> the ways for me to actually stay Christian were the, like the avoidance of those, of those things. And so I did, I started like doing a lot of education. I think the first, the first thing that I remember doing was watching Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson and learning about just how ridiculously gargantuan the universe is and how it's so big that nothing in the universe could possibly matter on a cosmic scale. And weirdly enough, that like that kind of cosmic nihilism saved my life. Like there was a there was a weight that just lifted off my shoulders. I didn't have to save the world. I wasn't broken. I was just a part of a crazy <laughs> cosmic accident that we're all here and enjoying together. And so from there I really just was like I was able to kind of detach myself a little bit and view myself and others with much more empathy and compassion. And so, I mean, I'm still obviously dealing with the effects of like shame and that culture of self-denial and self-abasement, but I'm able to recognize that now. And so I'm trying to be like more 
gentle with myself and give myself the grace now that I wish I'd been able to give myself as a small child. Yes. Be gentle, please. Yes. <laughs> now, changing topics completely, you know, your work, your employment's connected to something that I've loved for a, a long time now, and that's running. I've talked about it with many people that have been on Autism Stories. And you're a, a runner, experienced lead at, at Brooks Running, which, for those that don't know, is one of the premier uh, brands in the running apparel industry. It, it has been for, I don't know, 30, 40 years now. What are some of your responsibilities in the runner experience lead? Yeah, yeah. So the runner experience team is the way that we, we talk about customer service. So we're a running company, right? And so most of our customers are runners. There are definitely a lot of walkers and folks will use them for, you know, more daily activities and stuff. But we, we design our products for runners. And so so it's kind of a like a fun way to say customer service team, essentially. <laughs> um, so that's essentially what we do, right? And I lead one of the teams in that department um, who kind of directly interfaces with runners from various various places all across the country. And so kind of a, a big part of that is kind of, you know, just supporting and managing the team that I lead I and, mean, you know, troubleshooting the more complex customer questions. I have a pretty extensive product background even before Brooks. And so a lot of times I'll assist with like training on the various products and stuff like that. Then there's just a ton of kind of just various and sundry things that will come up on the day-to-day -day, little fires that you have to put out here and there. So it's a lot of just kind of dynamic fluctuation throughout the day and so you're just kind of largely adapting to whatever the day brings most of it is very similar to to a lot of other like call center type workplaces do you get to test out their shoes their running apparel anything any perks like that i have but i am exactly the wrong size if uh if your sample size there's like great opportunities to test out a bunch of upcoming products or new things, but I am exactly a half a size wrong for a sample size <laughs> in either direction. So I've only been able to do it once, but it is, it is fun to kind of have that like insider scoop, kind of see what's coming. Now, from what I understand, you don't just work for Brooks Running, but you're also running yourself. I always like to know how running has helped others because it's been so impactful in my life. So what are you thankful that running has given you? Running is essentially the singular reason I'm still alive. Like it is both a special interest and my favorite stim. <laughs> and so it is, I mean, it really is the only reliable, consistent form of emotional regulation I have, which isn't great. I'm looking for alternatives, but currently like that is the one place where I am just entirely unmasked. I don't have any... I don't guard myself while I'm running. It's true self-expression. I'm, I'm, it's the only place I'm really fully authentic and fully able to kind of be <laughs> in a way that I don't feel self-conscious about or I'm not wondering if I look weird or if people are going to like notice me in the wrong kind of way. And it, it's just, it's really like the purest form of joy that I have access to in, in a way that I, I haven't seen from other people <laughs> before. It's just the, I love the, you know, just the kinesis of it, like kind of this somatic feeling of running. I love just the way every single step feels and the constant feedback loop that your body's giving you, just telling you exactly what's going on in the moment. There's no past or future while I'm running. It's entirely just right <laughs> now. 
and it's I've found a great community through running and have been fortunate enough to like be able to work in the running industry so being in a you know customer service type role that's kind of a nightmare for an autistic person except that I get to just info dump about my special interest <laughs> all day so that's kind of a perk which is uh, something a lot of us would die for <laughs> I love everything you said. I especially love when you were talking about how running is a stim because, you know, it's absolutely a stim for me. And when maybe I don't go a few days without running for whatever reason, and maybe I'm a little grouchier than usual, and then I go out for a run, I'm like, oh, I needed to just get out there and move my body one step after another for a long period of time. Yep. And I've often, I'll often describe it more like dancing than I will like exercise because it's just, it's, it's purely like a recreational, enjoyable, like motion to me. There's not really a whole lot of like, the means to the end is just the experience itself. There's no, there's no goal outside of running by itself. So I've run in several different marathons and one of my favorite parts of doing that was going to the uh, marathon expos that they have just before the race and I'd pick up my race number you have to have a race number in in every race and I would see lots of different running vendors there and it was really meaningful because I knew I had trained so hard to get to this point that I was picking up my race number and I was going to be running in a marathon you know on, on one hand looking back at those experiences because I haven't run in a marathon in several years, I know that they were overwhelming environments for me sensory-wise. Because I would just walk in there, I would grab my race number, walk through all the vendors as quickly as possible. <laughs> so looking back, I realized, yeah, I was overwhelmed. Um, <laughs> so I saw recently that you were representing Brooks Running at one of these uh, expos. So I'm wondering if being at the expo was overwhelming for you, and if so, what did you do to deal with this overwhelm? Yeah, I've, <laughs> I was actually really, really concerned about the overwhelm component because I've worked them in the past pre-diagnosis and they've always been extremely taxing. They're always really challenging just because of the sensory. It's just chaos. Like the sound, sight, smell, everything is just chaos all around at all times. And so I just like this whole year has been really, really hard for a variety of reasons. And so I've been at a low state of, of like cognitive reserves. And so I was very concerned that I was going to be in a position where I would be overwhelmed to the point of like meltdown or, or shutdown at the expo. So I was, I was super concerned about it. And I had ordered these little like earplugs that kind of, they don't stop sound. They just like filter it. So they kind of bring the decibel volume down in the ambient uh, kind of sound around you. And I was hoping to have those before the event, but it didn't work out. <laughs> so I kind of went in without any safeguards. So I, I essentially, I just kind of let the organizer know, like, hey, this is what's up. I'm autistic. I'm really concerned about this particular aspect and not really sure how I'm going to react because I haven't been in this environment for a really long time. And he was very, very understanding and super eager to kind of like assist in like making sure I was in the best position to be able to be, you know, effectively representing the brand while also protecting my, my mental health. The expo itself actually ended up working out really well. And also there was carpet, so it dampened the sound too. So like it wasn't overwhelming from a, an auditory standpoint, which is what I was really concerned about. So that was kind of nice. But I think the somewhat unexpected major challenge was just the travel. It was the first time I'd been in an airport 
since COVID was a thing. And it was definitely the first time since I was diagnosed and the first time I kind of recognized some of these like sensory issues that I have. And actually, ironically, or maybe fittingly, I'm not sure, the, the podcast prompted my question about maybe I am autistic. Also, more recently released an episode that described the experience of many late diagnosed on after diagnosis and how they start to seem more autistic, quote unquote, start to feel more overwhelmed or more easily brought to meltdown and things like that. And I've definitely noticed that for myself. That was kind of my experience at the airport. It was really challenging to kind of keep my calm and kind of keep like that kind of anxious overwhelm from taking over. But we, we made it back, so, so we're, we're good. But the event itself was actually really fun to talk with folks in person, like have the shoes in hand and just like describe exactly what's going on with each of the products or, you know, give advice on like what might be the pros and cons of, of different things. It's just really great kind of environment. I haven't been able to do that since I started working in more of a call center environment. So it was really fun to get back in person with runners and kind of talk about running and running shoes. And uh, how can um, our listeners learn about you beyond uh, this interview? So you mentioned my blog. It's uh, at www.itsstorytim, my last name, T-I-M-M.com. And yeah, it is a play on it's story time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good with puns, but my name seems to phonetically fit. So it's like, all right, there we go. And then I'm also on Instagram at storytim either place, uh, working on revamping the blog. So it's a little bit sparse right now, trying to kind of get some more content, kind of rework that a little bit, but I will be posting there more regularly moving forward. And I'm pretty active on Instagram. Yeah. Well, your blog is very well written. So I encourage people to kind of check it out. Jesse, thanks so much for making the time to talk with me. Really enjoyed learning about your story and I'm still confused about coconut chips, but I'm going to Google them and maybe I can, maybe I can understand and I can move on at that point. <laughs> I've been confused since the day that they were unwittingly introduced, so I feel you there. <laughs> Thanks so much to Jesse for the conversation. To learn more about Jesse, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. So this is the part of the episode where I'm going to tell you about Autism Personal Coach and how we can be helpful in your life. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it, so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.